Today's scripture reading is from Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20, and 1 Kings 9, 1 to 9. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of gold and silver. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had achieved all he had desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, Because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their ancestors out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all this disaster on them. Well, again, good morning. As of this week, COVID-19 and the coronavirus is now a crisis for us. Sports world, the finance world, the entertainment world, our travel, even Tom Hanks are being affected by the coronavirus. This is a crisis. This is not the first crisis that the church or indeed humanity has faced. Jesus told us that we would face all kinds of crises, wars and rumors of wars, Famines and earthquakes and plagues, the end is still to come. All these, he said, are the beginnings of birth pangs. The church has faced many crises before, and she will face many more. The word crisis, which is from the Greek verb krino, which means to judge, means a decision point, a time of judgment, or the turning point, like the turning point for a disease, for example. At other crisis points, the church has chosen and had to choose. 
Live like the nations or follow Jesus? In the early church, the kingdom grew because of how the church responded during crisis. Persecution of the early church under the Roman emperors, the church grew. Plagues that severely damaged the Roman population, the church grew. The fall of Rome and the splitting up of the empire, the church grew. And it's still true today. Persecution in China, the church is growing. Persecution in Iran, the church is growing. Persecution under ISIS, the kingdom expands. Crisis can bring out the very best of the church. There are various reasons for this. One of them is that the church in times of crisis, at least when we're following Jesus, the church sees the value of every human life. Every person has worth and value in the eyes of God. Every person bears God's image, whether sick or not, whether they are a risk or not, whether they are poor or rich, young or old, with healthy immune systems or not, able-bodied or not, whether they come from a part of the world where the risk is great, whether they are leaders who have handled, handled the crisis well or poorly, every single person is the person who makes Christ available to me. Every single person. When the church responds well to crisis, when it looks like the kingdom that Jesus is bringing, rather than just looking like all the other nations, it displays faith, hope, and love. It displays faith and not fear. We put our trust in Jesus, who is Lord. We trust that he is ruling, even when the world is in chaos. The world is in fear and on the verge of panic. The reality is that fear makes us more susceptible to the things we fear. And we do not have to operate out of fear. Instead, we center ourselves on Jesus, who emptied himself for our sakes, who displayed the loving and gracious character of God to those around him, who cared for the outcast, the sick, the hurting, the vulnerable, who announced a kingdom for the poor, for those who mourn, for the meek, for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus, who suffered death for us, who rose from the dead and has conquered sin and death, who sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all nations as Lord, at whose name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We have faith that when we die, and we will almost certainly all face death, either by coronavirus or by a car crash, by heart disease, peacefully in our beds or violently in the streets, when we die, we have faith that we will rise with him. Because we have died with him already, and we are constantly facing the deaths of our own kingdoms, our own desires, ourselves, because of that, we do not fear death. And we can see death as a path to our resurrection with him. Many of us are going to have more or different free time this new season. So I invite all of us to spend time meditating on the scriptures, and particularly on the Psalms. I'm finding faith and peace and hope in Psalms 23 and 46. If you haven't memorized those, then I invite you to memorize them with me, or find other Psalms, something that you can cling to when you face fear or panic. Be still and know that he is God. He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. So we live with faith. We also live with hope and not despair. If you're a finance person, you must have felt like you had whiplash this week. And if you went to Costco this week looking for toilet paper, then you might be tempted to despair. You certainly witnessed a lot of people 
who are experiencing something like despair right now. Despair is a real temptation for those who have trusted in things that do not deserve and cannot sustain our trust. As followers of Jesus, who is still on the throne, we live with hope. We hope in the promise that this crisis is not forever. We hope in the reality that Jesus has seen and experienced worse than this. And he will eliminate sickness and fear and pain and death in the end. We have hope that if the worst gets even worse, God can raise us from the dead because he has conquered death. And we will not face anything alone. He is with us in every trial. So I invite you to hope in this season. I invite you, maybe you want to read through Revelation, meditate on the death and resurrection of Jesus, or just sit and talk with Jesus and ask him, what does hope look like for me right now, Lord? Where can I see you moving and start watching for your light to shine in this chaotic and dark time? So we live with faith and hope, and we live with love and not self-interest. Because we live with faith and hope, we can live out love. And I assume you are seeing too that people around us are living in self-interest because of their fear and despair. I'm seeing people hoarding all kinds of things. People are looking for ways to take advantage of others' financial pain. People are trying to exploit others' fears. And some, even some Christians, are encouraging reckless, foolish behavior like gathering in large groups simply to claim authority over the virus. My friend Bob posted on Facebook, and I thought it was right on. Christianity grew exponentially in times of plague, not because they refused to stop their normal programming and ignored common sense. It grew exponentially because Christians refused to let the sick and dying do so alone, hungry, and without comfort. The church grows because it lives out love. Sisters and brothers, how do we live in love? What does love ask of us? When the nations around us are acting out of self-interest, how can we put the interests of others above ourselves? At Cole, we are seeking to live with love. We're asking that we all practice some distance. No hugs or shaking hands in public. No Sunday services for a little while. And we will be getting the live stream up and running so that you can join us from home. Again, this is motivated by love. We want to listen to real concerns and act in ways that protect and care for the most vulnerable people in our culture and in our society and in our community. And again, the church has faced crises like these before and offered creative visions of the kingdom by living out love. I invite you to find ways to love those who are vulnerable right now. Some of us in this community can't do our own shopping. Maybe some others of us can help. There are some small businesses and folks who live on narrow margins who are going to be really affected by all of this. One suggestion I saw online was to buy gift certificates now to help small businesses get through. I saw that on Twitter under the hashtag InThisTogether, and I invite you to check out that hashtag. By the way, there are certainly problems and concerns with parts of the social media world. But the best parts of the online world were made for this moment. Live streams, online purchasing, easy communication. And I invite you to come up with new online solutions and ways to love one another and others in our community on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever your social media of choice. If you have creative ways to live out God's love in the time of coronavirus, 
please share them online with us so that we can all love well together. And we're working on setting up a system of help for you if you are sick or one of those at risk. Look for more information about that. And please let us know if you or someone you know has needs that we can help with. In crisis, Christians have expanded the kingdom by living with faith, hope, and love. Let's not live like the nations around us. Instead, let's look like Jesus and respond with his life. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into 1 Kings chapter 9 together. Jesus, you are Lord. You are in charge of the coronavirus and COVID-19. And in this time, you have placed us, your church, here. And you invite us to live out our faith, hope, and love with one another. So this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I want to lift up those frontline workers, those people who are uh, on the front lines of all this health crisis, who are spending time with those who are at risk. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray that you would anoint the healthcare workers, those who are caretakers for the weakest in our society, for the sick or elderly, those who are working in nursing homes or in assisted living homes. Father, would you anoint them by your Spirit to live out love in this moment. Father, I pray that you would work through them, that your life, grace, and truth would shine through them in mighty ways and that people might be well cared for, might be loved with your love, and that you would grow your church in this time of crisis as you have in many, many times of crisis. Father, I also lift up those who are helping take care of kids, those who are stocking shelves, teachers at schools, folks keeping the lights on for the rest of us, those making decisions for large groups, those making policy decisions, and government leaders. Holy Spirit, would you anoint these people? Would you use, give them wisdom, grace, love, and truth for each of those in our communities who are helping to keep the society functioning, help our culture keep going. I pray that you would anoint them, that they would spread your love wherever they are, that you would give them courage, grace, and truth, and that they might walk in it. And for all of us, Lord, help us by your Spirit to live out faith, hope, and love in whatever roles you've called us to in this time. Lord, you are Lord. And we trust that you are working in and through us to expand your kingdom and to fulfill your purposes. Would you be glorified in all of this? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Because we live with faith, hope, and love, we're going to continue on in our series uh, through 1 Kings today. Scripture shapes us and changes us as we encounter God in his word in ordinary times and in extraordinary times. God inspires us to faith in him, gives us hope in him, and fills us with his love so that we can go and love others. So we're looking at 1 Kings 9 together this morning, even though we don't all get to sit in the same place. So just a reminder of where we are in 1 Kings 9, in the book of Kings. King starts with David dying. His son Solomon takes over as king, and Solomon has been very successful in ruling the kingdom. He rules with wisdom from the Lord. He has po political and military success in the region. He's become incredibly wealthy. He has a huge palace, and he's built a spectacular temple. And the temple in, 
was just dedicated in 1 Kings chapter 8. But let's go back just a little bit further to Deuteronomy that Grace read for us just a minute ago. Moses is leading the people into the promised land, and he wants the people to know that they will want at some point to be like the other nations. They will want a king. God says, fine, but here's what your king needs to be like. And Grace read the passage describing what that king needs to be like. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20. He can't be about himself. He needs to be about God. No big military, no gathering up wealth for himself, no multiplying wives, no going back to Egypt. Instead, the king should be focused on God, making himself a copy of the law that he reads to himself every day. That's what a successful king of Israel is supposed to be. It may not be a great way to gain fame and fortune, but it's what God asks of a king of Israel. And in 1 Samuel 8, the people finally do get fed up with being different, and they finally do ask for a king, like the other nations. And God tells Samuel, okay, they've rejected me as their king. But that's okay, I still care for them. Just make sure to pick the king that I point out to you. Samuel warns the people. He says, look, if you have a king, the king is going to claim rights over your sons, your daughters, your property and land, and finally over you. This is not going to go well. So, Deuteronomy 17 and 1 Samuel 8 give us the blueprint for the things that Israelite kings are supposed to do and supposed to not do. Don't try to be the kind of king that is successful like the kings of all the nations around you with wealth, status, military power, political marriages, relying on other nations for strength. O kings of Israel, your focus needs to be on the Lord. If you follow him, then you will have been faithful. If you achieve success that looks like success in all the nations around you, well, but you have forgotten me, then you're a failure. If you fail in the eyes of the nations, but you are faithful to me, then well done, you good and faithful servant. So when we come to 1 Kings 9, it's, report, it's important to remember that God has already laid out for Solomon and the nation of Israel what an Israelite king is supposed to look like. He will look different than the kings of the nations around us because his focus is on pleasing the Lord and not on pleasing nations. So how is Solomon doing? Well, when we come to uh, the beginning of chapter 9, Solomon has been a wild success. He's been the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, all the way from Adam to Abraham to Moses to David. He's ruled with wisdom. He's finished building the temple. He may have spent longer on his palace, but sometimes kings have to do that, right? Kings will be kings. His temple dedication was excellent. And God has vindicated all of Solomon's work by putting God's own presence on the temple. Solomon has been great as king and God has blessed him. So at the beginning of chapter 9, then God shows up. And he says, Solomon, I'm with you. Do what I've asked you to do and things are going to go well. Don't do what I've asked and things will go badly. Here's the details of what God says. In verses 1 and 2, the text tells us that Solomon has been wildly successful and accomplished everything he's wanted to accomplish. It's been great. Great for Solomon, great for Israel, great for the nations around them. And Solomon's about halfway through his reign, though he can't possibly know that. But it's just a good time for God to show up and remind Solomon that the Lord is there and has plans for him. So he does show up. It's also a good time for the writer of Kings 
to remind us, the readers, that God has plans for Solomon. All of Kings, and especially this part of Kings, is is exceptionally well-written. It's sophisticated. It's got a really subtle argument. It's very understated in its assessment of Solomon. No one here says, Solomon followed God, or Solomon stopped listening to God. No, the writer tells us that God showed up in a vision to Solomon and then tells us what Solomon's been up to. As readers, it's our job to put those things together and compare the things that Solomon's been up to with what God told him to do. That's our job. And the writer of Kings has reasons for making us do the work here. The writer wants us to, wants us to think about how we evaluate Kings, how we evaluate leaders and those around us, and even how we evaluate ourselves. What lens are we going to use when we decide whether someone has lived righteously and followed after God? Is our lens based on how successful a person appears to be, or is our lens based on how well someone does what God asks them to do? Just like in real life with other real people, we're all a mix of good and evil, and the writer of Kings is not showing us overly simplistic characters. Kings is inviting us to evaluate in the light of God's character and revealed truth. So listen with those ears. Kings is inviting us to evaluate Solomon based on is he faithful to God or not. In verse 3, God tells Solomon that he has been with Solomon and has answered Solomon's prayers. I've heard the prayer and the plea you made before me. I've consecrated this temple which you built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and heart will always be there. This temple really is the dwelling place for God's name. God is answering the people's prayers. He's going to forgive. This is good news. In verses 4 to 5, God says, Serve me with a sincere heart and things will go well. If you live like David, following my commands and statutes, this is going to go well for you. Now, it's important that we remember that David was not perfect. (laughs) Peter Lightheart, one of the commentators, said, God commends David for how he lived, but David was not a perfect figure. He sinned badly. He even sinned unforgivably. But God forgives even unforgivable sins. As we said last week, God has accounted for sin. It's not sin that keeps you and I from God. The thing that will keep us from God is our refusal to turn back to him, to go worship after other gods or follow idols or refusing to turn to God. David was not perfect, but he consistently repented of his sin and turned back to Yahweh. He did not serve other gods or defend himself when confronted with his sin. He confessed, he repented, and he entered back into God's presence. Just a note, I hope and pray that we do not need to demand perfection from ourselves or our leaders. Though we should expect them to lead with wisdom, self-awareness, and humility enough to see their sins— take responsibility for their mistakes, and repent before God and others. So God tells Solomon, follow me like David followed me. Not perfectly, but don't turn away from me and follow after other gods. A couple of words he uses here is, follow me with a heart of integrity and uprightness, in my translation. Integrity comes from the Hebrew word tamam, which means completeness, wholeness, soundness, That is, follow after God with a heart that is not divided by seeking other gods or masters. Second word there is uprightness. 
from yashar in the Hebrew. That typically refers to rightness on a straight path or a level path. That is, follow after God in a straightforward way, not constantly swerving one way or another. So God's telling Solomon, look, stay focused in a wholehearted way. Stay focused on me and continue following after me. In verses 6 to 9, God tells Solomon, don't follow other gods. If the kings turn and follow other gods, then all of the nation will be removed from the land. God will abandon the temple, the temple will be destroyed, and the nations are going to come by and look and say, look what God did to his own people. Why did he do that? It's a very serious warning that God gives Solomon. A few weeks ago, Rod asked this question when he was teaching on chapter 6, when God showed up to Solomon there. He asked the question, why is there this focus on the kings? Why does God say he's going to discipline the whole nation because of the sins of one person, the king? And as Rod said then, this is not fair. No one person can live up to God's standards. And if they fail, then why should I or anybody else be punished? God is not being fair here. I want to say that I think Rod's absolutely right. It's not fair to put the fate of the nations in the hands of one imperfect person. And I don't want to undo the tension there. I think the text intends us at least to be slightly confused and distressed, to feel something like injustice in what God is suggesting here. So without removing the tensions, I also want to say that the nation of Israel brought this state of affairs on themselves. They were the ones who initiated asking God for a king. They didn't need to do that, and especially not in order to be like other nations. God is not the one who hitched the fortunes of the people to a sinking ship. The people did. The reality is it's hard for us to look around and see that everyone else seems to be doing it differently than the way we're doing it. It's hard to stand out. It becomes easy to want to do things the way that the nations around us are doing things. But when Christians act just like the citizens of the nations, we give away our witness. God has called us to trust in him, which will mean that we will stand out. Not because he's wanting us to suffer, but because when we look like Jesus while everyone else doesn't, we bear witness to God. We bear witness to Jesus as Lord. And we give the nations around us the vision that other ways of life are actually possible. In Christ, it's possible to live differently than the nations around us. Israel decided they wanted to look like all the other nations. So they asked for a king. And then this king starts living by success rather than faithfulness. Again, this is a danger for us. When we attach ourselves to kings, rulers, leaders, political parties, political ideologies, when we find ourselves submitted to or strongly allied to imperfect people who are going to fail, then we are inviting onto ourselves the punishment that they are earning. It seems obvious but important to say that we must work on attaching ourselves to faithful people not primarily successful ones. Even if the nations seek after successful leaders, we have the chance to maintain loose attachments to rulers, parties, and ideologies of this world and strengthen our attachment to Jesus, 
who is really and truly Lord. So, in verses 1 to 9, God is reminding Solomon of his purpose. He's inviting Solomon to follow after God like David did, not perfectly, but not following the nations and turning to other gods. And he's inviting us to attach ourselves to him and to no one else, no other gods, not submitting ourselves to all the other nations. In verses 10 to 28, we see how Solomon is doing. So how is he doing? Is he choosing to follow after God and refusing to follow after other nations? Do his eyes stay focused on the Lord or do they stray to other things? Well, Solomon is not facing a health crisis in this passage. He's facing another kind of crisis, one that can be more dangerous to our faith. Solomon is facing a crisis of success. Up to this point, Solomon has done really, really well. Remember, in chapter 3, God told Solomon to ask for anything. Solomon asked for wisdom. And because Solomon asked wisely, he asked for wisdom from the Lord, God chose to give him a whole bunch of other stuff. Blessing, wealth, and the nation prospered. And then the writer of Kings, over several chapters, describes Solomon's building of the temple, which is made for God's glory. Solomon's doing what he's supposed to do. There's question marks here and there. And again, the biggest one is Solomon's building of the palace. But things seem good overall. So let's start with this in verses 10 to 28. Solomon is a very successful king, according to how the nations measure successful kings. His nation is at peace. He's extremely wealthy. He has strong alliances, a strong military. And when you read through verses 10 to 28, it reads like the work of a very successful king. Verses 10 to 14 He's worked closely with Hiram, the king of Tyre, and he has a good relationship through the building of the temple. And now he's able to get Hiram to accept some minor cities as payment for parts of Hiram's partnership. Hiram doesn't like the cities and complains, but Solomon makes the deal stick. Again, he's successful diplomatically. In verses 15 and then 20 and 21, Solomon is able to use the Canaanites that are still in the land as slaves— just as Pharaoh had done with the Israelites, just as the people had done with the Canaanites after Joshua conquered the land. And this means that Solomon can set the Israelites up as supervisors, so he doesn't need Israelite slaves to do all his projects. This is good for Solomon and good for the Israelites. In verse 16, the writer of Kings tells us that, that Solomon has used Pharaoh to accomplish some of his dirty work. So Pharaoh destroys the city of Gezer, Solomon gets to rebuild it, and then Pharaoh gives the city to his daughter, who is also Solomon's wife. And then in 17 through 19 and verse 24, describes several building projects that Solomon did. Towns for all his wealth, towns for his military, for horses and chariots, projects for his wife, who is Pharaoh's daughter. He's building, he, again, he's very successful. Verse 25, it says that he goes into the temple three times a year. And verses 26 to 28 talks about all the gold that he's collecting through his uh, naval exploits. By the measures that we measure kings, wealth, alliances, military, benefiting the people of the nation, Solomon is extremely successful. And yet, the ways that the writer of Kings tells us about those successes here in chapter 9 provides clues 
that Solomon is going about this in all the wrong ways. For followers of the Lord and for us as followers of Jesus, success is not the same thing as faithfulness. One can be both successful and faithful, but Solomon is no longer both. He has chosen success over faithfulness. Again, in chapters 3 and 4, God blesses Solomon with wealth. God gives wealth to Solomon. But if we compare 1 Kings 9 with that era, uh, chapters 3 and 4, and then with Deuteronomy 17, it's almost like we could say that the writer of 1 Kings has looked at the list of things that a king is supposed to do in Deuteronomy 17 and said, I wonder how Solomon is doing at each of those commands. There are seven commands in Deuteronomy 17. Five things not to do and two things to do. Deuteronomy 17. No collecting great numbers of horses and military resources. Number two, no, no being connected to Egypt. Number three, no multiplying wives. Number four, no collecting large amounts of gold and silver. Number five, make sure to write a copy of the law for yourself. Number six, read the copy of the law every day. And number seven, don't consider yourself better than other Israelite kings. Seven commands. How does Solomon do in 1 Kings 9? Collecting horses and military resources? Well, he has cities built to collect and store all of his horses and chariots. How's he doing with being connected to Egypt? Well, he married Pharaoh's daughter, and he's built this strong connection to Egypt. In chapter 10, we don't know this yet, but in chapter 10, we find out that the horses and chariots that Pharaoh has collected came from Egypt. He's violated the one on not being connected to Egypt. He has not violated the prohibition against marrying wives. So good for Solomon. Should he, has he collected large amounts of silver and gold? Indeed he has. And again, he's built cities to store his wealth. In verses 22 and 23, we find out that Solomon has not made slaves of the Israelites. He's just conscripted them for his government, army, and his overseers for his projects. How has he done with the law? Again, Deuteronomy says he must make a copy of the law for himself, and then he's supposed to read the law every day. Well, in this chapter, chapter 9, there is no mention of the law at all. He goes to the temple three times a year, which is very different from reading the law every day. Just to clear that up. And also, the language used here by the writer of Kings is very ambiguous when it says that Solomon goes and fulfills uh, his obligations to the temple. The ESV translation says at the end of verse 25 that Solomon has finished the house. Other translations say something similar. Finished the temple, completed the temple, completed the house. The NIV is a little more ambiguous. It says Solomon fulfilled his temple obligations. Let me say the Hebrew is far more ambiguous than that. The word used for fulfill or finish is the form of the Hebrew word, Hebrew verb here that usually means repay a debt. Earlier in 1 Kings, 1 Kings the end of 1 Kings chapter 7, The same verb is used, but in a different form. And there it says, Solomon finished the house. In chapter 9, verse 25, same verb is used, 
but in a different form. And in this form, it always in the Old Testament means repay a debt. So in the, in the Exodus law, if you um, killed, if I killed your oxen, then I had to repay that oxen by getting you a new one. The suggestion that I'm making here, and I think the, the suggestion that the writer of 1 Kings is saying, is that Solomon somehow feels bad or should feel bad about how he's living, but he repays his debt by showing up at the temple three times a year. Some of us live that way, don't we? We decide, I can live how I want to live as long as I show up to church two to three times a month. Let me just say, God is not fooled by that. And I don't mean that as a threat. I just mean that God is radically pursuing us in his love and we're totally missing out by trying to buy him off by paying our obligations. We're missing out on the love of God. We're missing, misunderstanding God. If we treated our friends or spouses that way, they'd be rightly offended. And I would suggest to you that God is grieved by how Solomon is treating him here. Okay, so how did Solomon do at his seven commands? Well, one of the commentators, Ian Proven, at this point says, okay, at the, at the end of this chapter, Solomon has broken all of the rules for the kings except one. No multiplying wives. If we know Solomon's story, or if we read ahead to chapter 11, we know how that will turn out. So, is Solomon a success as a king? Well, I would suggest that Solomon is another example of something we've talked about at other times. Are we choosing success or faithfulness? Solomon has chosen success rather than faithfulness to God. And as Jesus' people, we are called and invited to pursue faithfulness. To live according to the words of God. To follow after him in his pattern of life. To pursue faithfulness even when it gets in the way of our sense of success. So again, Solomon is an incredibly successful king by the measures that the nations measure and value kings. If Israel were any other nation, Solomon would be an extraordinary success. But Israel is not just another nation. Solomon is Israel's king And Israel is ruled by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. Solomon has figured out how to be a great king if he were the king of any other nation. But he is failing to be a good king over Israel. He is pursuing success and not faithfulness. He has turned away from the Lord. So my question for us today as God's people, are we ready to live like no other nation? Are we ready to pursue faithfulness in the face of nations who are seeking success? Jesus, as our example, pursued faithfulness, not success in the eyes of the nations. He was born into shame and poverty. Indeed, he chose to be born into shame and poverty. In the growth group guide this week, Nikki makes a great point that of all the kings— Solomon is the first to be born into royalty. And that can do something to our expectations and how we choose to live. Jesus was not born into royalty. 
In fact, he chose a low birth so that he could identify with the weak, the poor, and the shamed. He served the weak, the poor, the sick, and sinners. He died a criminal's death. He rules over the kingdom that has no military, weak economic indicators, brings blessing to the weak, poor, sick, and shameful people of the world. Jesus has chosen faithfulness, and he is a faithful ruler, one who does not seek his own good but the good of others, who lays down his own will to submit to the will of the Father, who says to God, take this cup from me, but not my will but yours be done. And remember we talked earlier about how it's unfair that the fortunes of the nation of Israel get stuck behind the faithlessness or lack of faithfulness of one person. If the king is faithless, then the people of the nation will suffer. And Solomon was going to let everyone down and the nation would end up in exile because of bad kings. Well, how much more unfair is it that all of our sin and shame and unfaithfulness must be dealt with by the one man, Jesus? Rightly or wrongly, The people of Israel put all their eggs in the king's basket and the basket fell apart. Well, for those in Jesus, we get to attach our fortunes to a ship that will not sink. Our eggs are in an unbreakable basket. Maybe it's titanium with like padding or something. Our hopes are placed in a king who will never fail because he has already conquered sin and death and every other enemy. It's unfair for him and it might feel unjust but it is our only hope for life and peace and grace. Because of the unfairness that all our hopes rely on just one man, we have the possibility of life. Jesus was faithful all the way to the cross. He is the one king who is worthy of our allegiances, our identity, and our worship. And in Jesus, by God's Spirit, we are being made into a people of God that values faithfulness. We might look like failures in the eyes of all the other nations, but we are not like all the other nations. We are a unique people following after Jesus. Because Jesus is our king, our values get to mirror his. He values the weak, poor, and despised things of the world. So do we. He rejects the tyranny of success. So do we. He pursues faithfulness. So do we. We're like no other nation because we have a king who's like no other king. Those who follow Jesus are like no other nation because Jesus is a king like no other king. And with the Spirit of God in us, our measure of faithfulness is whether or not we are learning to show off the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's the measure of our success in the kingdom of God. And Jesus' kingdom does have now and will have in the future victory. Jesus overcame our unfaithfulness when he humbled himself to enter into our world as a baby. He crushed the serpent's head when he rejected Satan's temptations in the wilderness. He defeated pride and self-interest in the garden when when he submitted his life to the Father's will. He defeated sin at the cross. He defeated death at the resurrection. He rules over all nations now as Lord. We still live in the middle of a mess. But Jesus will complete his victory when he returns to set all things right. There will be no more difference between faithfulness and success because we will see then that faithfulness 
is the surest way to true, real success. Those who have pursued success in the eyes of the world will see their beautiful building projects crumble. And those who have valued faithfulness to God above all else will see their efforts raised up, multiplied, and shined up to reveal their true glory. So as the people of God today, we're like no other nation. The people of God have always and will always wrestle with wanting to look like the other nations, wanting the success of other nations, wanting to be important in the eyes of the world. And it's a real wrestle. It's a genuinely hard wrestle because no one wants to stand out, especially when we can't see immediate results for our efforts. So today, always, God is inviting and calling us to change our value system, to prioritize faithfulness to him over success that looks good in the eyes of the nations. To stand out as people whose hope is in a crucified Lord. To chase after humility, grace, peace, and truth instead of success, self-advancement, victory, and self-defense. He invites us to follow Jesus, not to follow other kings like all the other nations. He invites us to face into our crisis today with faithfulness to Jesus, trusting in his victory over death. He invites us to look at our reality with hope. He invites us to follow Jesus to pursue love with one another in the middle of this crisis in which we find ourselves. Let's pray. Holy Lord, we praise you. Jesus, we praise you. You've defeated sin and death. And Holy Spirit, we praise you and we invite your presence with us in the middle of a crisis in which we find ourselves, would you enable and empower us to love the way Jesus has loved? Would you enable and empower us to be faithful? And would you enable and empower us to live with hope and to spread hope where we see despair? God, you have made us for this time and you are empowering us. Anoint your people, Father, by your Spirit to be culture changers, to be renewers, to be life and to be light in the middle of darkness. Jesus, we praise you this morning. You are our king. Amen. So just a quick announcement. Uh, We're planning to live stream the services for the next couple weeks. So check back on Facebook or on the website for more information. We want to be getting information out to you. That's our goal through emails, website, online stuff. So Keep looking out for that information. Receive the benediction this morning out of Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Blessings this week.